Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So with that, John 19, and I'm going to invite our reader this morning, who's one of our veterans, to come up and read to you. Well, thank you. And happy Veterans Weekend to everyone. So, John 19, 17 through 30. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Gogatha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What, have I, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cobathus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hopsip, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You know, as a church community, we've spent the last several weeks discussing the seven signs found in John's gospel. And then we've decided to continue on spending a few additional weeks looking together at some additional high points that John records for us, kind of as we inch closer to our Advent series and the Christmas holiday. And you might remember the first half of John's gospel, most scholars refer to it as the book of signs because it follows those seven climactic moments of Jesus not only doing miracles, but having those miracles function like a signpost that point to a greater reality outside of themselves. You probably remember that John doesn't use the word miracle. He instead does refer to them as just that, as signs. And he, even at the end of the book, he tells you why he recorded these signs. He recorded them, he says, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, saying, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. You see, at the final moments, though, of Jesus' life in John's Gospel, these final moments, they're recorded, 
And they too function like signs for us, pointing to great realities outside of themselves. So we spent time first looking at Jesus in the garden, and then Jesus on trial. And then today, as you just had read to you, we find Jesus on the cross. You see, in our text today, we find the sons of men have fastened to a cross the one who had fashioned the universe with his hands is whom they have now pierced. And as we had heard Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane that it was the Father who would give him the cup of suffering to drink, in this moment, we don't ask, though, what is the Father doing to the Son by putting him on the cross? If we ask that, it would be to ask the wrong question. Because it's the whole of the Godhead who embraced the cross together. The right question really is, what are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit accomplishing together in this moment at the cross? I appreciate one author's take on this when she said it this way. She said, it is vital that we understand that the Father did not do this to the Son. The Son and the Father are doing this together. You see, this moment is the culmination of the plan, the eternal plan of the Godhead coming together before our eyes as we look at Jesus on the cross. And John really tips his cap to this reality, to this being the foreordained plan of God in pointing our attention to, in verse 24, the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes. He's trying to get you to notice it. Now, my goal today was to walk through four things that I think John uniquely shows us about Jesus and his embrace of the cross. Uh, But as you maybe have been around for a little while know that I have a tendency to do this, I realized I'd bit off a little more than I could chew. So we're only going to look at three or four of those, and then next week we'll kick the final one down the road uh, to to look at together next week. But what I want to do is look at three things that I think John uniquely is trying to point your attention to with Jesus on the cross. And the first is what Jesus becomes. The second is what Jesus births. And the third is what Jesus suffers. And then next week, we'll talk about what Jesus accomplished. And we'll also look at his resurrection. But today, what Jesus becomes, what he births, what he suffers. The first thing is what Jesus becomes. Because I want you to see that at the cross, the son becomes the forsaken of God. Look again in your Bible at verse 23, where it tells you that then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic, it was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, amongst themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Who's to see whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, and quoting from Psalm 22, verse 18, he quotes that Psalm saying, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. By pointing this moment out, what John is intentionally doing takes our attention all the way back hundreds of years to a psalm, an ancient psalm that was written, recorded in Psalm 22. It's actually something, if you were here for our call of worship today, or call to worship, it was something we read together as a church before worshiping. Psalm 22 is this really mysterious psalm of David that really, in some ways, makes no sense at all. Because David was never forsaken, like the psalmist writes. Because he was never publicly ridiculed as the psalmist describes in that text. David endured a lot, but nothing like he recorded in Psalm 22. So then the question through the ages has been, what or who is David even talking about? And really, ancient scholars long had the question of who it would be who'd be ridiculed and forsaken, like David described, because they recognized this was not David's real reality. 
But Jesus answers that ancient mystery in this moment with his words and with his sovereign hand. Think about this. With his sovereign hand in that, it tells you here that they gambled for his clothes. Because according to Psalm 22, this is exactly what we would see happen around the cross. But it's also recorded in another gospel in Matthew's account that Jesus' own words would draw your attention to Psalm 22 when Jesus from the cross was heard saying, as his arms were outstretched, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, there's this ancient game that rabbis would play that historians tell us about where they would walk with their pupils because their classroom was not just in an enclosed space. It was their classroom was on the road going from village to village that the rabbi would teach in. And as they'd walk basically in their classroom, Jesus would be known as a peripatetic teacher. It's someone who would walk and teach. As they moved from place to place, he'd constantly be expounding his thoughts and sharing what he thought about things. And he would also be playing a game that the ancient rabbis played where they would quote the beginning of an ancient passage of scripture. And it was the job of their followers to recount and to recite the remainder of that passage from memory. It was a way to make sure that their pupils, that their young apprentices stayed sharp on the scriptures and knew and understood them very well. And so for Jesus as a rabbi to be on a cross and to quote verbatim the first line of Psalm 22 would have taken the minds of anyone who knew the scriptures back to that ancient mysterious psalm where they would have been or they would have began to either recite in their own mind or maybe even with their lips the words that the ancient King David had written. When Jesus would outstretch his arms and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? The book of Acts will reaffirm that this is an ancient psalm that David wrote. And it was written not just about how David was feeling, but clearly was written about the suffering that the Savior would endure. And the religious leaders and anyone who knew the scriptures would have began to recite it to themselves, maybe even out loud, which The psalm records an amazing play-by-play recorded hundreds of years before of the very things that they'd see taking place right in front of them. You would have thought that the psalmist David sat and knelt beside them and recorded these things in real time. Here's what the psalmist records. If you want to flip in your Bible to Psalm 22, I'll just reference some of them. In verse 1 of Psalm 22, that he would be forsaken. And in that moment, you look around and all of his disciples are gone. That he'd be despised by men, verse 6. That he'd be ridiculed by men, verse 7. You remember how they ridiculed him? Oh, you said you'd destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. If you could do that, why can't you get down off the cross? Oh, they'd mock him for trusting in God, verse 8. They marked that he trusted in God. Let's see if God will come down and rescue him. Psalm 22, verse 11, that no one would be present to help him. Verse 12, that he'd be surrounded by enemies. Verses 14 and 15, that he would suffer physical exhaustion. Jesus on a cross would be laboring just to breathe, having to pull himself each time to take a breath. It also records in verse 14 that his bones would be dislocated, which is exactly what crucifixion does to somebody. As the weight of their body pulls and sags, it would pull their shoulders out of their place. It would dislodge them and dislocate them. That he'd suffer, verse 15, great thirst, even crying out, I thirst. That he'd be surrounded by enemies, verse 16. And again, verse 16, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That they'd come to break his legs. You know the story, he'd already be dead. And so as the psalmist had said in verse 17, that not a bone would be broken. That his garments would be divided. That he'd be stared at by the people. That lots would be cast for his clothing. These are the things, the play-by-play, that the psalmist had recorded. And what Jesus is doing here is not just telling people, turn to Psalm 22. 
What Jesus is clearly saying is, I am Psalm 22. You see, what Jesus becomes here, I want you to see, is at the cross, the Son of God becomes the forsaken of God. But what we find in in Psalm 22 is that this does not end, the Psalm does not end where it began. Remember, it began with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the, the voice of my groanings? But it ends with the triumphant statement that my God does not forsake me. You see, forsaken in Psalm 22 meant allowing Jesus to continue to suffer rather than to rescue him from that suffering, which is what the Father and the Son chose to do. You see, the psalm, it concludes with the statement in verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him, he heard him. Just the evening before, Jesus had said to his disciples in John 16, verse 32, that a time is coming and in fact has come when you will all be scattered, each of you to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. You see, Jesus was confident and clear that although others would abandon him, his Father would remain by him. Oh, don't misunderstand Jesus' cry here. Oh, yes, he felt utterly alone, but please understand the Father's heart broke with his sons in this moment. I actually really loved the way that the Passion of the Christ depicted this moment. You might remember from the film, It's in this moment where Jesus cries out and then it shows, it pans back to show the earth from afar and a single massive teardrop fall from the skies. The heart of God the Father broke with him. If the Father's words were recorded in that moment, I'd assume that we'd hear them laced with emotion. I'd assume that he would have whispered something like, oh, my son, my son, never before have I hurt so deeply. You see, we could say it this way, that In love, the father gave up his son as he judged the sin of the world. And in love, the son gave up his life as he carried the sins of the world. See, this is the most mysterious moment really in all of human history where there's not a breach in the triune nature of the Godhead, but a fracturing of the relational unity that existed between the father and the son, something that had never happened before, something that will never happen again, but something that happened because of you. Yes, because of your sin, but because of Christ's love for you. And it happened so that you wouldn't have to face that kind of separation from God. I mean, when we ask the question, why did he say it? Really, the answer is he said it so that you wouldn't have to. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you would never have to make that statement? You see, he asked that question so that you could receive the promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, what John is pointing out to us in this mysterious moment is that Jesus takes on the sin of the world that God made him who had no sin to become the sin of the world so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What he becomes is the forsaken of God. But think then about what he births by doing that. What does he birth by becoming the forsaken of God? I want you to see that, that what Jesus does at the cross is that the Son of God births the family of God. See, there were so many there on that day who gathered to see this man, Jesus, hanging on the cross. And the majority of them were not sympathetic by any stretch of the imagination. Some were told they reviled him. Others taunted him. Oh, if you're really the son of God, come down from there and prove it to us. The chief priest, it says they mocked him. The scribes and elders, they scoffed and yelled that he saved others himself. He cannot save. 
And the Roman soldiers regarding him as already dead, they gamble for his personal belongings as he watches them. However, not everyone that was there was counted as an enemy. You see, John mentions at least four people, and one of them was Jesus' own mother, Mary. Think about Jesus' mom for a moment. She had had it pretty rough right from the beginning. I mean, she's told in that moment where an angel arrives to address her that she's blessed and highly favored amongst women. And yet she would live with a stigma and reputation of being a woman who was pregnant and unable to identify the child's father. Her only defense was that I'm the only person in all of world history that miraculously conceived without being involved with any man at all, I promise, and that I know this to be so because an angel appeared to me privately and told me. I'm sure that didn't go over very well. Remember when she took Jesus as just a baby then to dedicate him at the temple, to give him over to the priest to pray for him. And this righteous man named Simeon took Jesus in his arm in Luke's gospel chapter two and looked at Mary and said, a sword will pierce your heart because of this child. Those prophetic words, they, they would loom over her life like a dark cloud as she raised and watched her firstborn son grow. I mean, I wonder if those words rang in her ears as he watched, as she watched him as a young boy laugh and play. If she wondered, what will the extent of it be, though? What will happen to him that would leave my own soul crushed? As she watched her son grow, no doubt she wondered often, and when will that piercing pain arrive? And Mary would feel just a hint of that future pain many times throughout Jesus' life. Like when he, as a boy, disappeared after a family reunion and was missing for three panic-stricken days, only to be found and look at his mom and say, don't you know that I should be about my father's business as he had remained in the temple? I think a, a little bit of that pain was felt even at the wedding feast in Cana that we talked about several weeks ago. When she came and said, Jesus, you need to do something to, to keep them, protect them from public shame because they've run out of wine. And you remember that he responded and said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My orders come from above. I'm sure she felt it again when he preached his first sermon in his hometown. She probably rallied all the neighbors together on Sabbath to hear him in the synagogue. But you might remember the sermon title for his message was that they were hard-hearted, inhospitable, faithless, and perverse people who refused to open their hearts to God by rejecting him. I'm sure it hurt her as she saw the crowd's response, her own neighbors that she had grown, uh, raised her son with. Oh, his mother and his brothers are later spotted coming to Jesus, believing the rumor about him that maybe he's lost his mind and they're trying to put him away privately. Oh, she felt pain many times before, but now the moment that Simeon had prophetically given while holding Jesus as just a baby boy has finally arrived as it's no longer a gray cloud she's under. She finds herself instead in the shadow of the cross where her heart aches and breaks with a pain that only a mother could understand. You know, in life you learn quickly that when someone you love suffers, really the depth of your suffering becomes or I should say the depth of your love becomes the measurement of your pain. In other words, the greater your love for them, the deeper you feel pain with them when they suffer. You see, this moment doesn't merely present a good mother who would stand up and say, 
that she'd rather suffer herself than have her son, her son suffer. Because any parent who has a child who suffered will tell you that when a child suffers physical pain in their body, their parents endure the same pain in their hearts. She's already suffering in this moment. This is the piercing of a sword. Oh, don't miss the gravity of the situation. Don't overlook the weight of the moment. A mother, a mommy, is watching her innocent son, her baby, bleed to death while being mocked and ridiculed. And in verse 25, it says that Mary came and stood by the cross. And maybe what we are to picture is, is Jesus literally figured, or literally uh, in that moment, his mother coming and standing there, trying to hold it together, trying to give Jesus strength. Or maybe it's telling you that she initially stood until she's so overcome with grief that, that she crumbles and mounts to her knees. But the Greek word that's used here for stood or fixed, it communicates a determination not to leave. It doesn't just communicate that she stood in her place, but that she was determined to stand in her place. While Jesus was mocked and ridiculed, I will not leave the side of my son. It's a word that would be used to describe a kingdom or a family that stood. It remained intact even when an enemy was attempting to topple and overthrow it. It communicates that Mary stood by her son not as a co-redeemer, as some have suggested throughout the ages, but in showing her support. She was there as a demonstration of her desire to defend him and his innocence. It's telling you that their bond as mother and son, it remained intact and that everybody saw it. At some point in this scene, though, that's described for us, Jesus' disciple and friend John arrives and he too stood by Jesus. He too was determined to be there. And that is when Jesus looks down and says, in chapter 19, verse 26, to Mary, behold your son, with your attention now being pulled towards John. And then to John, he says, son, behold your mother. You see, Jesus in this moment, he looks to John to look after his mother. Okay, think this through. It's telling you what Jesus is birthing here. Because at the cross, the son of God births the family of God. It's really not surprising for us that even in his hour of greatest suffering and sorrow, Jesus is here thinking of others. As one author put it, in the midst of accomplishing mankind's redemption, the son did not forget to provide for his mother's future years on earth. We could give a very simple point of application here, and it would be go home today and call your mother. But in our passage this morning, It's an odd request that Jesus makes because Jesus had other brothers that had the responsibility that would fall to them for the care of their mother. However, Jesus is making it clear that there is a bond that's unique. There's a bond that's deeper and stronger than and thicker than blood because it's a bond that is eternal because he's establishing a family that's everlasting, the family of God. So Jesus will supersede that natural order of my other brother should step in to do this, looking instead at his spiritual brother at John, believing that he's birthing a new family and saying things change as of today. And it tells you in your Bible that John from that day forward took Mary into his own home. You see, this statement from the cross by Jesus is not nearly about him being nice to his mother. It's about the new family that comes into being because of the cross. You see, at this moment, Jesus is causing a new relationship to come into existence that did not exist before. John and Mary are two real individuals that Jesus addressed because of a real need 
John and Mary are simultaneously symbols and examples of the new family that Jesus is establishing on the cross where our connection is deeper than blood. It's the spirit of God, the one father that we all share that should leave a body, a family united under the headship of God. In fact, some commentators, they point out that as Jesus' side was pierced, that blood and water poured out. Blood and water, what we would think of as birthing fluid. It's showing you that Christ is birthing something new here. As we've mentioned many times before, here is a church, we don't just believe that we were saved from sin, we were saved into a family. But that's what the Bible teaches us. I really appreciated what author Fleming Rutledge wrote about this. She said, when the Christian community is working the way it is supposed to, people are brought together who have absolutely nothing in common, who have diametrically different views on things, who may even actively dislike each other. The Christian community, God's new family, when it is not grieving the Holy Spirit, comes into being without regard to differences because personal likes and dislikes have nothing to do with the body of Christ. Then quoting from Galatians chapter 3, she said, There is neither now Jew or Greek. There is neither now slave or free. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. We should have a diversity here in our gathering that should rival the DMV, but with a smile. Where people would walk in here and say, of all the people to to be together and even to love each other, you are unlikely candidates because the reason we typically are bonded together with others is because of what we share in common. It's because they're in the same walk of life as me. The same, they have the same worldview as me. They might even have the same skin color as me. It's that we find our relationships typically are with a lot of people who look and act and think a lot like us. But in the church, there should be such beautiful diversity. Like a DMV where you walk in like, we're all here because we're here to suffer. No, we're all here because we're here to rejoice because we have something worth rejoicing in. See, from Jesus' statement, we learn both about how Jesus viewed his family and how God views the church, his new family. Oh, please look at what Jesus becomes because in this moment, he becomes the forsaken of God so that we could be the welcomed. That he would ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we hear the promise, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, what he births though in this moment, you're most, or you're meant to see that the son of God is birthing the family of God. But the only way he's gonna do that is by him suffering. And that's the third thing. I want you to see what Jesus suffers because at the cross, the son of God suffers with and for the family of God. You see, on the cross, we find Jesus crying out for relief from his suffering, asking for just a drink to address the pain he endured from the miserable symptoms that would stem from extreme dehydration. He'd cry out with just one word. The word is just thirsty. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus was suffering a very real physical need. And did you notice what verse 28 highlights for us? It tells you that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. It wasn't just that Jesus said this after he had suffered a lot. It was also once he realized that what he had set out to do, which is to pay for my sin and for yours, once he knew that it was done, that it was accomplished. It's actually the same Greek word that's used in his final statement from the cross recorded in John's gospel, where he says, it's finished. Once he internally knew that, he then became mindful of his own suffering. You know, it's been said that to be human is to suffer. And even God who became a man was not immune to suffering. And that's huge because 
I don't want to worship and follow a God who doesn't understand my suffering, who holds himself isolated from it. But what we find in Jesus, as we've said before, is we find that he's God enough to save us and yet human enough to understand us. Oh, he's God enough to rescue and human enough to get me. He's God enough to remedy and human enough to feel with and to feel for me. I worship a God who refused to be immune to suffering, who was willing to taste it and experience it to walk through human suffering with us. In fact, what you find here in this moment, you find God incarnate taking on flesh, walking among us, now on a cross, suffering the lowest form of human misery and misfortune. It's the worst way for a human to die. It's the worst evil that humanity had had conspired, not just to kill a just and innocent man, but to kill him in such a way that you'd be mocking him and stripping him, not just of his clothing, but his dignity. That he'd be bleeding out and in this moment so deeply dehydrated that another problem he's dealing with is that he's dying of thirst. There's no lower point. There's no more, there's no lower rung in poverty than for someone to die because of a lack of access even to water. Do you see that Jesus would suffer even the lowest of things that the most impoverished people throughout human history, even they could not stand before him one day and say, Jesus, you've never suffered as I have. No one will lift a sleeve to show a tattoo from Auschwitz and say, Jesus, you have no idea what it's like. Because Jesus would suffer in the lowest forms and in the lowest degrees and the way that he would be executed in this moment and him even suffering for a need for the simplest, lowest things amongst us, just water. You see, no one can say that there's none that have suffered as I, for Christ chose to suffer more and deeper and lower than all. Crying out in utter isolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now suffering the lowest and humblest of human forms, longing just for a droplet of water. Are you willing to trust the God who is willing to enter in even to the lowest form of human suffering, even to enter into your suffering? Will you trust him? Because what Jesus suffers here is that at the cross, the son of God suffers with and for experiencing even the lowest forms of suffering so that he could identify with every member of the family of God. Author A.W. Pink, in his book about the seven statements of Jesus from the cross, he said it this way. He says, philosophizing about the problem of suffering brings scant relief. After all our reasonings, we ask, does God see? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Does he really care? Like all questions, these must be taken to the cross. While they do not find there a complete answer, nevertheless, they do meet that which satisfies the anxious heart. While the problem of suffering is not fully solved there, yet the cross does throw sufficient light upon it to relieve the tension because the cross shows us that God is not ignorant of our sorrows. From the person of his son, he has himself bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, as Isaiah 53 says. The cross shows us God is not unmindful of our distress and anguish for becoming incarnate, he suffered himself. The cross tells us God is not indifferent to pain, for in the Savior, he experienced the pain. Jesus cries out from the cross in this moment, I thirst. And this moment isn't just about him identifying with us. It's not just about identification with us. This moment is about Jesus' substitution for us. 
He doesn't just understand us. He took our place in this moment. That, my friends, is the gospel. Please don't miss what the scriptures make clear here. And that's that Jesus' suffering was for a purpose because in verse 28, it says that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus pronounces this. You see, the Old Testament had prophesied and predicted about each detail concerning Jesus' death, including his betrayal by a familiar friend in Psalm 41, that he'd be forsaken by his followers in Psalm 31, that he'd be falsely accused, Psalm 35, that he'd be silent before his judges, Isaiah 53, that he'd have his hands and his feet pierced, we read it in Psalm 22, that he'd be mocked by spectators, Psalm 109, that he'd be taunted because he wasn't delivered from his pain, Psalm 22 again, that his garments would be gambled for, that he'd pray for his enemies in Isaiah 53, that he'd be forsaken of God, that his bones would remain unbroken, that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb even. But the final act before Jesus would die would be him fulfilling the last of those things that were prophesied about him on the cross when he would cry out thirsty, he'd fulfill its final word of prophetic imagery. It's recorded in Psalm 22 that I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melting within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. It's a sun-baked piece of pottery. And my tongue, it clings to my jaws. You have brought me down low to the dust of the earth. Or Psalm 69, verse 3, my throat is dry. Psalm 69, verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food. You remember when he first went to the cross, they offered him that. It's liver bile, it's poison. It would have deadened and numbed him to the pain, but he refused it. And for my thirst, again, Psalm 69, they gave me vinegar to drink. The very thing you find here, soured wine. Historians tell us that Romans were getting sick from the bacteria in the water and that this was what they prescribed for them. Mix in some vinegar, some soured wine to distill and neutralize that bacteria. You see, the divine eternal purpose of these ancient prophecies was to show us beyond any doubt that the crucifixion was planned in the mind of God from the beginning. Jesus had said, I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment I've received from my father. One commentator, he emphasizes this moment in Christ's thirst this way, saying, the crucifixion was not an accident, not a mistake, not an unfortunate slip up. It is the deliberate self-offering of the good shepherd. And so when he says, I thirst, it is to show that he is fulfilling his purpose according to the plan of God from the beginning. Oh, his experience of thirst, his suffering of great pain was not just to fulfill prophecy. It was to save humanity. That was the reason. That was the goal all along. But before I let you go, I just want you to see that Jesus' suffering was for a purpose. And so is yours. Which maybe in moments it's so hard for us to believe that that's true. Because you have a difficult time seeing what God is doing and how God could somehow use this and how there could be a purpose behind it. But everything that God allows you to go through, every frustration he puts in your path, every heartbreak he permits you to experience is able to serve a grand redemptive purpose. And that means then that the family that you're in, that the problems that you face, the job you feel stuck at, the living situation you're sick of, the friends you've been hurt by, are not things you merely face by random chance, but ought to be viewed as things that you and I embrace and face by divine appointment. Please hear me say, God doesn't cause all of our suffering. However, it's perfectly clear and promising that God is more than capable of redeeming and using all of our suffering. Oh, we hurt and, and suffer and weep and mourn knowing that God stands with us and that he cares for us. 
And we know that God has done something for us to remedy those moments. We're not just comforted that God cares. Oh, we're comforted because he came. Because when we question his care, his goodness, or his justice, and saying it's not right, this isn't fair, why didn't you intervene and do this or do that? That in those moments, God does not provide the answer to our intellectual dilemma. No, he provides instead the resolution to the problem. He doesn't give us some explanation from heaven. He gives us himself. God came, and in this moment, we're seeing him do it. He's suffering and dying to rid the world of sin, sickness, and suffering and death once and for all. You know, you can close your Bible. You know, for me this week, I found myself in several different conversations with different people whose lives and families have been deeply marred by suffering over the past week. A wife who will now bury her husband, a, a mother and a father who will bury their adult son, a, a group of people who are having bewilderment intertwined with their grief as they process the loss of their friend by suicide. And it, it's no surprise that these separate, very separate incidents, they have overlap, though, in similarities in the way that we try to process them. Comments like, I just can't believe that, that they're gone so quickly. I knew that this could happen, but, but I couldn't imagine my worst nightmare becoming my reality, and definitely not so soon. Hearing comments from these different entities that sounded so similar, saying things like, it's just not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to have to do this. Spouses retire together. They grow old together. They're meant to die together, not bury each other. Parents aren't supposed to bury their children. Friends shouldn't have to stand by a graveside and wonder what they could have done different for their friend who despaired. The truth is that the sometimes we, we reach for answers to our questions of why with no good answer in sight, though. What I've learned over time is that Christianity does not explain or give the reason for each individual experience of pain that I feel or have to walk through. But Christianity does promise that God will redeem it and can use it for good. Christianity does provide resources then to help us and to comfort us as we walk through those dark valleys, knowing even that Christ joins us in those valleys. And Christianity presents and proves God's great care and plan to end all of our suffering. You see, although my choice to follow Jesus, it may not, it does not give an explanation for every time that I suffer. It does, however, tell me every time what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. God cared so deeply about our misery and suffering, about our pain, that he was willing to take it upon himself in order to end it once and for all. He cared so deeply, that's why we find Jesus there on the cross. You know, I personally, I may never be happy with or thankful for some of the ways I've suffered in life or some of the pain that I've endured, and maybe you won't either. You may, however, find that by the grace of God, you can come to see that some of those pains and some of those wounds begin to give you more than they cost you because they give you a deeper level of intimacy and faith in Jesus and they give you a much deeper level of empathy and care for others. When Jesus suffered, he did it for a purpose, and yours can hold a purpose too. 
Oh, John points us to the cross to show us what Jesus becomes, that he becomes the forsaken so that we could be the embraced. Oh, it shows us what Jesus births, that he births the family of God where there's something that's thicker than blood that bonds us together. Oh, what Jesus suffers, he suffers with and for each member of the family of God so that he can welcome us home. And so, Father, we turn your attention to thank our unique and holy God for the unique and amazing thing that you would do in suffering with us and for us. God, that you have loved us enough that your love compelled you into action to do the unthinkable. Jesus, you had said it, that greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus, you did that. You died not only for your friends, you died for your enemies. You made a way, though, for us to be welcomed as sons. So God, today we look your direction with thanksgiving. We look your direction with hope that you can redeem and use even the worst of pains that we suffer, even as you did in Christ. That he did not suffer for some meaningless thing. He did not suffer without purpose. It had a divine, eternal plan connected to it. And so we pray, God, for each of the things that we face today, for each heartache and heartbreak, God, that you would work them together for good like you promised to do, and that you'd place hope in our hearts while we suffer through it. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.